0: really rewarding part about science is when it's actually useful to other people and I think like most other scientists I it's I'm still working on that on making sure it can be as useful as possible where we can actually interact with land managers and figure out what kind of questions and answers will be most useful and so in the long run hopefully uh, trying to actually improve you know conservation and restoration.
1: This is Science Moab. Today we have Dr. Kerry Veblen. Dr. Veblen is an Associate Professor of Wildland Resources at Utah State University. Dr. Veblen studies the interactions between plants and the animals that eat them in both the western U.S. and in African savannas. Here we talk about herbivores in the American Southwest, both native and non-native grazers, and the different ways in which herbivory influences southwestern ecosystems. We begin with Dr. Veblen explaining the influence that these herbivores can have.
0: Well, the first way to think of it is to divide ungulates up into different types. And so you have grazers that eat grass. And so in terms of how they would shape the landscape, oftentimes they might remove grass. You might have less less herbaceous vegetation. Um, And then you can think about browsers. And so browsers are the ungulates that eat woody plants. And so, you know, and there are all kinds of, of, of grazers, all kinds of browsers, depending where you are. So, you know, an example in Africa would be elephants that browse on trees. And so those would be major shapers of the landscape. You hear these stories about where they've had big elephant populations and they've, you know, completely decimated the tree population. And so, it, you know, you end up with this area with a lot fewer trees than you would, than you had, you know, before this population explosion of elephants. In the way I think about it, about how ungulates shape a landscape, I think of it very much in terms of herbaceous, so meaning like the grassy type plants and then also the woody type plants, and just basically the balance between them, um, and I know how many there are of each type of plant.
1: And so, in our systems in the southwest, you know we could talk about different elevational changes because many exist around the southwest. But in general, did most of these systems evolve with
0: grazers? Right, so that's a big question uh, or a big consideration when when people think about um, herbivory from ungulates on the landscape. The big, you know, ungulate question oftentimes in this area is cattle grazing, and so in that case, we can say that no, we did it did not evolve like, the, say, bison. When you think about bison, you think about great plains and these, you know, huge expansive grasslands, and in those cases, people are much more apt to consider herbivory and grazing to be a natural part of the system because they're clearly was this close evolution of the of the landscape with with grazers
1: and in those cases how do the two co-evolve so is you know if, if grazers are a part of the natural system mm-hmm. how does that work out for the plants how do the plants maintain the growth if they're being so grazed how do they you know compensate for the evolution with grazing.
0: Right. So when plants have evolved with grazing, typically what they do is they evolve these traits that can help them be more resistant to grazing. So, you know, so examples might be of, you know, how rapidly they can respond to grazing. It could be how palatable they are to grazing as well. Um, so, I mean, that's a little bit of a different question, but plants that have evolved in places with a lot of herbivory pressure may also be more apt to evolve traits that deters herbivory. Oh,
1: yeah that makes sense um,
0: and then also another sort of classic grazing trait is basically the growth point on the plant and where it grows and whether it's basically accessible to the to the herbivores or not so so for instance if
1: it some plants are going to grow from their base rather than from the tip of their leaf
0: right that'd be a good example yeah just like where they're where they're, the major growth is coming from on the plant the location yeah
1: that yeah. makes sense. it's interesting to think about and so you're saying that this area Southwest in general didn't evolve with these grazers like the bison per se, and mm-hmm. so presumably a lot of the plants didn't have a lot of these
0: evolutionary
1: mechanisms
0: to deal with this type-specific type of grazing. Throughout the West, at some point, there's been some sort of herbivory, right? right? Especially if we're thinking on much longer time scales. But I think usually mm-hmm. when this debate comes up about you know evolution. With, with herbivory or evolution with grazers, it has to do with cattle grazing. And so, in um, a lot of the work that I've been doing, especially the stuff um, in Kenya, in areas, which is an area that has evolved with, with large ungulate herbivory, the real key is the intensity of the herbivory. Okay. Generally, what you find is that cattle are going to be stocked at higher levels than your wild ungulates and of course we're not talking about massive herds of bison but we're talking about like other types of animals and and so in those cases even if there has some been some sort of evolution with herbivory it can be more difficult for the plants in the landscape to deal with it if we're talking about just higher intensity just in greater numbers and in greater concentrations obviously if a place is not evolved with herbivory it can be even more difficult for the plants to cope.
1: And so you were, you know, talking about other kinds of herbivores other than um, cattle, and so I, maybe you could just list some of, from this area, because I can think of deer right off the top of my head, but someone who doesn't think about things that eat plants too often.
0: So mule deer are a common wild ungulate that are on the landscape right now, and that's obviously they're a species that's of interest to people, like for hunting, and then just aesthetically, people like to see them. There are also elk on the landscape, and um, their numbers appear to be increasing as well. And then when you get um, down to the drier, lower elevation areas, there also are pronghorn antelope.
1: And those are the the three main ones in the Southwest region. Do you guys count like rabbits or anything when you're talking about, not really ungulates, right?
0: Yeah, so we do. We definitely try to take into account uh, the effects of rabbits, and just lagomorphs in general, um, because, and in fact, a lot of times when people have set up studies to look at the effects of big ungulates, like cattle, and and, and like say, elk or deer, they'll specifically account for lagomorphs by having like different types of fencing to either include them or exclude them, okay. because it's clear that they can have such a, a major effect.
1: <laughs> right. And so some of your work is looking at specifically how how does grazing by cattle versus grazing by these other animals that you listed differ? Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk about that what you've seen in your work how what, what are some of the differences between the, the the types of grazers or when you have the two grazers together versus not together mm-hmm. on the landscape.
0: I mean <laughs> one of one of the things that I found in some of the work that I've done in northern Utah and that probably will not differ for the results we get down here in southern Utah is that, well, cows eat grass <laughs> and browsers eat woody plants, yeah. which often is, is not a very a surprising conclusion. But, you know, for instance, the work in northern Utah where the wild ungulates, which in uh, in that case were largely elk and, and deer, were excluded from areas, you did actually have older, bigger sagebrush okay. in those stands. And so, you know, and at a certain point when you have older, bigger sagebrush and too many of them, it gets to be too dense. It's not necessarily ideal growing conditions. It may not necessarily be what people want from a, from a management perspective. And again, that would be a case where these plants have evolved with some herbivory over time. And so people might consider the herbivory from these browsing animals to be a natural part of the system. And a lot of these patterns that you see aren't necessarily really dramatic. You know, we're not talking about these huge shifts in landscapes. I mean, like earlier I was talking about elephants. And, you know, Yes, sometimes you can have, have these ungulates transforming landscapes, but sometimes it's more subtle changes. And sometimes there are changes that are livable. Sometimes there are changes that give you a glimpse into direction that you maybe don't want the landscape to go in.
1: And so um, some of your work has alluded to or shown that background factors, so what we call abiotic factors of a system. So the soil type is the main one that I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. They'll affect the way that different areas respond to Mm -hmm. grazing. And I was wondering if you could break that down a little bit for us and what you've seen in the patterns with different soil types and how grazers have... How the plant communities have responded to grazers differently.
0: So, one of the examples is some um, is a project that we're actually working on right now. And this is being led by my PhD student Kyle Nearing, and essentially, um, what we have been finding is that if you look at deep soils, in those soils when the sagebrush have been exposed to herbivory, so exposed to browsing from wildlife, that you end up losing uh, more of the sagebrush component, so you get lower densities of sagebrush. Whereas if you go then to the soils that are not quite as deep, then When you have these areas that are accessed by wildlife and compare them to areas that are not accessed by wildlife, it turns out that the wildlife are not reducing the sagebrush densities as much. Yeah, And so the thinking is that with those, on those shallower soils, because we're talking about the Colorado Plateau where there tend to be sandier soils, the soils are better drained, and so it's actually advantageous to have these somewhat shallower soils because then you have this water layer that's basically accessible to the plant.
1: Oh, it's like a deep reservoir for the plant.
0: Yeah, and so, but you don't want it to be, you know, you don't want it to be too Too well-drained or too deep because (laughs) then the plant can't access it. Um, And then if then you overlay herbivory on top of that, then perhaps in these areas where they're better able to access that water, they're better able to respond you know, and recover from the stress of herbivory. And so that's why, in these deeper soils, they seem less able to uh, to recover from their herbivory. What's interesting is that this is consistent with these greater landscape patterns that Mike Dunaway and April Darger and Gene um, Shoup have found in Beef Basin. And so, you know, Beef Basin has historically been very valued for its winter ungulate habitat so habitat for for mule deer and so they went in and they looked at the um, patterns of sagebrush and they also found that it was on those deeper soils where the sagebrush had died off and it was on the less deep soils where the sagebrush had, per- had persisted over time. Interesting. Yep.
1: Well, you were talking about, you know, the reality of a plant being grazed and maybe not having enough access to water, mm-hmm. and then that being a stressor, stressing point for the plant, maybe causing a less robust plant. And I was wondering, you know, there's a lot of land use changes on top of grazing, and then there's also also climate change on top of grazing, both mm-hmm. cattle and non-cattle grazing. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts um, on how all all, these multiple stressors at the same time might interact to affect plant communities?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that when you think about the effects of herbivory on plants or almost, you know, any sort of question related to, you know, ecology or natural resources, the problem is basically the, the rate and the intensity of these disturbances or you know of these 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 novel factors. Um, plants have always had to deal with variability, but the real concern is if we have these extended droughts that they've never seen, and then yes, you add some sort of stressor on top of it that they are probably not going to be very well equipped to to deal with these multiple stressors. And so, with herbivory, that certainly is a, is a concern, is, um, you know, knowing how much a plant can cope with the stress of herbivory, because nobody's going to dispute the fact that it's stressful to be eaten. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, trying to figure out, you know, how much uh, herbivory stress can they cope with given, say, you know, the added stress of an extended drought or of, of frequent droughts
1: we're out on a landscape say in this in the southwest Mm -hmm. would you say that the structure of the plant community that you see is structured in a large part because of herbivory or do you think in dryland regions that the plant structure is just more about soil type or precipitation amounts or i mean i'm just trying to get a feel for how big of a driver of plant community patterns that, that herbivory is?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I think you're right that it certainly is all of the above. Um, and certainly in these drier areas, people think about soil and moisture. Um, but I think similar to you know what we've been discussing earlier is that if you add herbivory onto it, whether you're talking about rabbits or you're talking about deer, or you're talking about cattle, that um, yeah, it's, it's likely to, to precipitate some sort of change. I mean, in, in some ways you can think of it as being less relevant because there are so many other stressors in a system like this. But at the same time, you can think of it as being even more relevant because if you have plants that are just living on the edge and you add another stressor, then that could precipitate a complete change into, into a different state. Well, oh, so, that's interesting. yeah. I mean that would be one way of thinking about it.
1: Um, the presence of herbivores on a landscape, they must be feeding back. There must be a feedback um, to other community members besides plants. and I'm guessing. and so I think I'm thinking about you do a lot of work in the sagebrush and I'm just wondering about sage grouse mm-hmm. and like other animals, potentially birds or other smaller animals that rely on that ecosystem but maybe don't necessarily eat sage age, I'm mm-hmm. wondering um, how herbivores if if you if you see any interactions between the different community members like mediated through herbivory. yeah, so one
0: so one example where herbivores can have some have an indirect effect on a lot of other components of the ecosystem would be so if an area were grazed and say inappropriately grazed too heavily, and so you ended up losing a lot of the plant community that was there then you would open up that area to erosion and loss of soil, and then in turn, what might happen is you end up with these non-native species, which often are these invasive species. They'll often form these monocultures, and so you know they don't have the diversity, they don't have the specific species that might be required by, say, native animals in the area. And so one example of that, you know, that people worry about is uh, like with sage grouse. So in the Great Basin, you have cheatgrass invasion, and then typically this cheatgrass invasion leads to this cycle where it reinforces itself. And so you have these monocultures of cheatgrass, and in that case, you don't have sagebrush, you don't have these native forbs, and you don't have these uh, native grasses, all of which are you know, an important part of uh, grouse habitat.
1: Um, I'm curious what first got you interested in this work.
0: Um, so the way I got interested in this work was that I was interested in restoration and grassland restoration. And so that led me to studying plants and thinking about you know, why plants grow, how they grow, why they do well. And then um, that led me to thinking about Herbivores, because they eat the plants. <laughs> it's really that simple. <laughs> and so, uh, and then I had the you know the opportunity to um, work on a project as a PhD student where I was looking at livestock and wild ungulate effects on plant communities in Kenya in the savanna system.
1: Awesome. <laughs> and then last
0: question is, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? That's a good question. Um, I really enjoy being able to ask questions and figure out the answers to them on my own. And, you know, in in being an ecologist, a lot of times that means going outside, spending time outside, collecting data, and being able to make observations outside in in really beautiful areas. Um, And then, you know, and another really rewarding part about science is when it's actually useful to other people. And I think, like most other scientists, I, it's, I'm still working on that. I'm making sure it can be as useful as possible. But for instance, this um, symposium that we're attending now is a great example of um, where we can actually uh, present science, interact with land managers, and figure out what kind of questions and answers will be most useful. And so in the long run, hopefully, uh, trying to actually improve you know, conservation and restoration. Um,
1: well, we're we're excited that you're excited about it because <laughs> your work is important, and I think will be really interesting to a lot of people. So thank you. The music for our show is by Jeremy Spalding. The science news comes from Science Daily. The student interviews are coordinated by Chrissy Post, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.